but also giving some context to later as well, because just saying you can pick that up later, for some children, later means absolutely nothing. And sometimes they can't trust our later because we say later and then we don't mean it. Or later is actually tomorrow and not in the next half of an hour, which is what the child has, has imagined. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? In a radical act of self-care, I have pushed back the beginning of the ADHD Essentials Summer Parent Coaching Groups to Monday, July 12th, primarily because I just need a week to inhale and take a break now that school is over and COVID is wrapping up and all of that fun stuff. I just, I'm taking a week to myself, so I'm pushing the coaching groups back a week so I can use that week to unwind, I guess. Um, That said, registration for the ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups is open. These groups are designed to help you navigate all of the transitions that we have coming up right now. We are in the midst of this extended slowdown reopening thing that a lot of us are still trying to figure out how to navigate. School is wrapping up, summer is starting, and because these groups will end on September 1st, during the course of the groups, we'll be looking at the start of school. So not just the end, but the beginning of school. The groups will take place over eight weeks, once again, beginning on Monday, July 12th, and wrapping up September 1st. And we meet as implied, on Mondays and on Wednesdays for an hour. There's one group meeting at 1 p.m. Eastern, another group meeting at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can pick the one that is better for you. The groups are split 50-50 between connection and content. The connection is just what it sounds like. You are connecting with other parents who are affected by ADHD and differently wired kids. You'll get to know them. You'll make friends you'll find out that you're not alone. The content is thematic. Each week has its own topic that we address. Week one is practicing self-care because you matter. Week two is developing parental leadership and really taking a look at how to steer our family more effectively. Week three, we're looking at how to foster and strengthen connection within that family. Week four is improving connection with ADHD-friendly strategies, as well as just broad-based good communication skills, which happens to be what today's episode is about. Week five, we're looking at creating systems and structures that are ADHD-friendly and will help our household run more smoothly. Week six is managing anxiety, because if we can tamp down some of that anxiety, the ADHD stuff becomes easier to manage. Week 7 is Understanding the Wall of Awful, my model for the emotional impact of ADHD and the repeated failure that comes with it. And week 8 is about asking better questions. 
both to get our kids to say something other than good, fine, and nothing when we ask them about how their day went, and also because I'm not going to get to everything in eight weeks. So although there's plenty of time for individual questions throughout the groups, week eight is really stump Brendan time. So I give you extra time and more opportunities to ask me questions about things that matter to you. That might be school, that might be medication, that might be, what do I do with my kid who just refuses to do anything? Once again, the next session starts on Monday, July 12th. Registration is now open. Registration will close on Wednesday, July 7th. I'd love to see you join. Welcome to the show. In this episode, we are talking to Joe Butler. Joe is an autism and neurodiverse communication consultant and the co-author of Is That Clear? Effective Communication in a Neurodiverse World. Joe shares effective strategies for communicating with our neurodiverse kids, spouses, co-workers, students, and friends. She talks to us about pausing and pacing, the importance of connection when communicating, the nonsensical nature of our language around time, respecting other people's priorities, and the challenges of figurative language. All right, let's get rolling. I'm Joe Butler. My experience is largely in education. I was teacher and head teacher latterly at an autism specialist school for children, young people aged three to 19 for uh, 16 years. Uh, since coming out of that five years ago, I now have my own consultancy business and support and I work across the UK and more and more outside of the UK. So through that, I wrote co-authored the book, Is That Clear? Effective Communication in a Neurodiverse World, which is a very short 100-page book that's designed for realistic or non-autistic people or neurotypical people to understand their responsibilities, really, in making communication clearer and more accessible and more inclusive. The book is awesome. It's so easy to read. My audience knows that I geek out on like book stuff because I used to be an English teacher. So I'm like, I appreciate the layout of this book and things like that happen when I talk about books. And this book is it's really small. It's really short. Like you said, it's 100 pages, which makes it less intimidating, which is awesome, right? Because you're writing a book about communication. Part of the point of that you share is like, be concise, make it easy to understand. A short book is that it's not intimidating. I'm not looking at a textbook here. I'm looking at almost looks like a pamphlet, like it's phenomenal. And then you can flip open to any page and find something useful, not just useful, but immediately applicable. Like you read it and you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's how to do that. I understand. I might not have thought of it, but now that I'm looking at it, duh. And I love that about this book. Like I'm really I'm really kind of jazzed about the book. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you on because I don't really interview people whose books I don't like. But I also want to share, you sort of mentioned that, that your work is with folks who have autism, autistic people. And in my head, autism and ADHD are kind of like neurodiverse cousins. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity. It's not the same, but there's traits that are there in both. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to have you on. Because the communication is critical. I talk about it all the time in my parent coaching groups about here's how to more effectively communicate with your kids so that we can get the stuff done that we want to get done. And now you've got this little handbook that is even better. What are some of the first steps 
that you would say are important when it comes to making our communication more neurodiverse friendly? The very first thing we talk about is pause and pace, making sure that the pace of our communication and a good way of sort of um, monitoring that pace is by putting in some pauses. And that's really, really important, both with people with ADHD or with autistic people in terms of giving processing time, time for a person to catch up on what's been said. Sometimes people will talk about having filing cabinets in their brain and, and when somebody is talking to them, having to really try and think about, right, which filing cabinet am I going to now in terms of not only processing what you're saying, but also then processing, having time to process my response. And I think with ADHD, in terms of distraction, in terms of perhaps the person only hearing the very first words that you say or the very last words that you say, and maybe missing part of that middle message, it's really, really important that we chunk out our communication and give people time to process, to reflect, and time to respond. And the random rabbit holes that the ADHD brain goes in, right? Like I just heard the word message and that made me think of message in a bottle. And that made me picture a bottle floating on the ocean, which for some reason made me think of a pirate ship. And now I'm remembering the Disney movie Treasure Island and Long John Silver. And that makes me want to go get some fish at Long John Silver's because I'm hungry now. That ADHD chain of thoughts that goes all over the place. And the next thing you know, you're like, Anybody want to get a Chick-fil-A? And you're like, how did we get to Chick-fil-A? Absolutely. What is going on? So be really clear in what you're trying to communicate as well. And taking out some of that, the filler words, the filler language to try and be really clear in your expectation and really clear in, in trying to keep to a topic rather than it being that we almost open opportunity for the person with ADHD to go off at different tangents just because we've not been concise and clear in what it is that we're actually saying. And I also like the fact that you mentioned pace because I'm not always good at that on this podcast because I get excited. <laughs> but it is important that we slow down and that we pay attention to pace and, and provide folks with that opportunity to think about what was just said and, and analyze what was just said. And it's a lot easier in a back and forth conversation than it is on a podcast. And I, cause you also want to keep the podcast engaging and you got to have some speed for that. Uh, yeah, I'm the same. I, I often, even I cringe almost uh, whenever I talk about pause and pace, especially in interviews like this, because I think, you know, I'm really saying do as I say, not as I'm doing right now when I'm enthusiastic and keen. I want to talk about positive and inclusive communication and recognize I'm not always doing what I'm, what I'm advocating. But I think that's important. I think it's important that, that experts come on and say, like, this is best practices. This is the way we want to be doing stuff. But it's not easy. It's not a situation where we can just go, oh, we'll do that. And then you do it. And then, yay. That's not realistic. If that was realistic, we wouldn't need this podcast. Absolutely. As neurotypical people, we have to. We have a responsibility to teach ourselves some of this, uh, to teach ourselves about slowing down and pause and pace. And that while we're leaving some of those pauses, some of those silences, 
the neurodivergent person is working really, really hard. Their silence doesn't mean that, you know, that they're just taking a breather. Yeah. Uh, they're working really, really hard to process what's just been asked of them. And if we sometimes misinterpret that and think, actually, this silence means that the person hasn't understood what we're saying, then the temptation for us as neurotypical people or as people generally is to fill that silence and is to perhaps ask that question again or give that instruction again. We think, actually, if a person's not understood us the first time, let's rephrase how we ask that question or how we give that instruction. And what that means for the neurodivergent person is that they have to go right back to the beginning sometimes of processing what's been asked. So it leaves a longer processing time. So, yeah, we need to, you know, recognize putting in those pauses and paces, adapting and adjusting our pace uh, for the person that we're communicating with and recognizing that they're working really, really hard in that time to process and that that in itself can be exhausting in day-to-day conversation. I like to think of conversation and communication as a game of catch. If I throw a ball to you and I'm pretty sure you didn't catch it, it doesn't make sense for me to then just throw like 30 more balls at you. But that's often what we do in communication. We're just like, well, I'll just keep saying this different ways until they understand. And I know I've fallen into that trap. I fall into it less now, but I certainly used to do that all the time when I was like 10 years ago or whatever. And now it's sort of like, I try to think of it like, well, if I threw that ball and they didn't catch it, I probably need to throw the ball differently. I don't need to throw a thousand different balls. I need to throw the same ball in a different way. And if I'm playing catch, that means I'm going to lob it to you. I'm going to throw it in a, in a big arc, nice and slow. So it's not hurtling towards you like a comet. And you're more likely to catch it that way. That's the pacing piece that you're talking about. If I slow down how I'm talking and I put some breaks in there and I speak more clearly and I even more importantly, if I make sure I'm paying attention to you and not what I'm saying, because if I'm talking to you and I'm watching your nonverbals and I'm watching what your eyes are doing and what your head is doing and how you're standing and and all this kind of stuff. Now I can pick up on are you understanding or are you not understanding? Because I'm tuned into you. And if I still don't know, ladies and gentlemen, you're allowed to say, does that make sense? Are you with me? Do you understand? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Ask, 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 ask. And, 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 you know, talking, you know, perhaps with a nonverbal or non-speaking person as well. It's not just about asking in words. It's about, it's about observing. And as you say, connecting with the person. That's what communication is. It's two-way. You can't have communication uh, (laughs) without that partner. And that's why we use that term communication partner through, through the book. We need as neurotypical people to meet on that bridge. And for too long, I think it's been left to neurodivergent people to make all the effort, do all the work, learn what neurotypical expectations are, and learn to respond in an expected way. And it's not good enough. It's not fair. <laughs> uh, that, that balance needs to not only be about meeting halfway, but actually, I would say, you know, because of how baffling the neurotypical world can be, as neurotypical people, we should be making more of that effort and meeting more than halfway. 
in terms of checking our communication and our language. And some of this is, I shouldn't say some of this, a lot of this is power. Neurotypical folks have more power in society than neurodiverse folks. Some of that is just the nature of being neurodiverse means it's harder to succeed. So you get less power because you have less success. And with great power, my, my friend Peter's uncle Ben used to tell him that with great power comes great responsibility. And the responsibility part is the side that you're talking about. It's yeah. As neurodiverse folks, or just people who are good at communicating, like I am, I, I am neurodiverse, but I kind of have like neurotypical skills when it comes to communication for the most part, if not better. And if I'm better at something, I should be trying to support the other people in my vicinity with my stronger skills, as opposed to criticizing them and judging them for not being as skilled as I am. Absolutely. I can kind of give them some space and give them some of my, some of my extra stuff can bleed onto their plate and they can have that and I can support them in that way. Part of our responsibility is to own our own miscommunications. I don't think we spend enough time when somebody has misunderstood us or not been able to carry out a task in thinking, is that on me? <laughs> and what, and I think, you know, going back to, you know, I love your wall of awful. Oh, thank you. And if we can just own some of our miscommunications and take some of that stress and worry away from people that they've done the wrong thing or not understood something well, we can take some of the bricks out of that wall. Either give people a foothold to climb over it or to squeeze through to whatever that task is. But just by saying, that's not on you. <laughs> that's me. That was me not being clear in my language, in what I asked you to do, in writing things down or giving you visual clarification so that you can remember what you're meant to be doing in this next 15 minutes. If I can do all of that, I give that foothold. Circles back to power, right? Because if I'm insecure in my power, I am less likely to say, hey, that's on me. I messed up. But if I'm secure, it's easier because I I screwed that up. Sorry. Here's what's up. An example that keeps jumping into my head in all of this is when a parent communicates with their kid and and the way that they do it is like mom's in the kitchen. Junior is in the living room playing video games. And mom yells from the kitchen into the living room. Hey, you have to put your shoes on because we have to leave in 10 minutes. And that's the extent of the communication. And then his mom is angry 10 minutes later when junior isn't ready to leave the house. That doesn't work, but it's often how the communication happens. And some of that is because mom's doing 100 different things and is flying around the house. She's making lunch and also cleaning the counter. And also, I don't know, on the phone with dad to plan wherever they're going and make sure everyone's going to be there on time. And they just mom doesn't take the 40 seconds it's going to take to stick her head in the living room and go, hey, kid, put your shoes on because we got to leave in 10 minutes and then make sure that the kid heard her, knows what they're doing and is in the process of wrapping up that video game or starting to put their shoes on or whatever makes sense. And as a result, we get aggravated because Junior didn't put his shoes on, but some half the time Junior doesn't even know you wanted him to put his shoes on because he might have headphones on playing that video game and didn't even hear you or might have been so tuned into the video game. He kind of heard you, but missed it or went, yup, from the living room, pretending that he heard because he heard your voice and just 
automatically responded with a noise. Oh, because that's the expectation. That's what you want to hear from me. That's, yeah. that's those rules of communication that I respond in some way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you've brought into there is around time awareness as well, which we know in terms of executive functioning and those differences can be really difficult and different for a person with ADHD. So that whole 10 minutes thing, you know, if the person's not aware of, you know, we need to leave the house in 10 minutes and we and we use those. I mean, there's a section in the book about time and just about the language that we use around time and how nonsensical and uh, uh, it is. So either, you know, in things like where we say, oh, just wait a minute, but we don't mean a minute. We, you know, it could be five minutes, 10 minutes or the other side of that, you know, the meeting's going to last for. 20 minutes, but we know it's going to be more like half an hour. Or when we say to somebody, we'll do that later, but we don't actually give any sort of parameter about what later means, all sorts of things around time. And one of the most frustrating about when we say all too often things like a person always does that, or a person never does that. When we don't mean that, <laughs> you always say that or you never listen. Well, of course, I listen sometimes, but immediately the person's, you know, thinking about the unfairness of that rather than whatever the actual point is, whatever the actual communication aim is there. Yeah, particularly if they're more concrete in their thinking, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's just aggravating, right? The more concrete thinker is going to be like, if the meeting is always going to be a half an hour and we always know it's going to be a half an hour, why do we always say it's going to be 20 minutes? You're driving me nuts. Or even at home, a, a thing that happens at home in our house, kind of, it happens less now because I'm more precise with time because I have ADHD and I have to be. But there's this habit of like, well, we'll watch a show. It'll take like a half an hour. We'll watch like a half an hour sitcom. But if you're watching that half an hour sitcom on Netflix, that's a 23 minute sitcom because the commercials aren't there anymore and it doesn't take a half an hour to watch. And so sometimes that's fine because that seven minute wiggle room is going to give you the space anyway. But other times it's like, well, we have to leave the house in 25 minutes. We can't watch a half an hour sitcom. Oh, no, you can. You can absolutely watch a 20 a half an hour sitcom because it's only going to last 23 minutes. So those pieces of time too, for a kid who is more concrete, whether it's the autism making them more concrete or the ADHD making them more concrete or just where they are maturity level. Cause there is this window where you understand time well, but you're still really concrete and you haven't figured out the loosey goosey nature of give me a minute. Any of those reasons can mean that being more careful with how we describe time is important. Absolutely. Plus in the example that you gave, you're asking different things there. You're asking someone to stop the video game, even if that was implied and not actually said. Uh, you're asking someone to then put their shoes on. You're then asking someone or giving the reason that that's with that, again, implied reason that they're going to be off of that computer with their shoes on and stood by the door ready to go out. And, uh, you know, that's too much to process for some people or in some situations for some people and context is so important as well. And understanding when people's battery energy levels <laughs> mean that they can process more than one instruction or direction at a time or at other times when they're going to need that breaking down more. And that's hard. That's hard for homes and families. And, you know, but we know you can do that. You did that 
fine yesterday so why is this an issue today and just recognizing those battery energy levels and you know we can't force a, a phone whose battery's uh gone uh even if it's a fun thing that you you think you're asking the phone to do it can't do it until you've plugged it back in again and recharge those levels and on both ends right like i want to be respectful too of the frazzled mom in my example yeah because mom might not have the energy to go into the living room and be like, you need to stop playing the video game. You need to put your shoes on because we're leaving for grandma's house in 10 minutes. Mom might not have the emotional wherewithal to do that. There also might be mom might have like the brain power for it, but maybe you've got a really argumentative kid. And any one of those three things could cause a kid to want to argue with you. I don't want to stop the video games. I don't want to put my shoes on. I don't want to go to grandma's. Maybe all three of them are a thing for mom to get an argument and, and back talk as a result of. So mom might not want to say all three because she's trying to avoid conflict as much as possible. So instead, she's like, we have to leave in 10 minutes. And that's yeah. all she says. Yeah. But the kid doesn't really, really get why doesn't really understand what's being asked of them. And that might be part of why there's conflict in the home. And especially if there's not time to plan or that's part of a routine or that's a change in the routine. Unexpected. Yeah, that was where I'm headed is this is part of why we need to recognize that we can systematize some of this stuff. That example, leaving the house, it's probably the same routine every time. And if we systematize that routine, it helps support communication because if we're really clear about when we leave the house, it means we have to do X, Y, and Z. And we train that and we drill that. Then we can get to the point where we just say, we got to leave the house in 10 minutes. And the kid knows what that means, but not with all neurodiverse kids, neurotypical kids kind of pick it up from subtext and implication and all this stuff. And they get it systematized on their own, but a neurodiverse kid, we might need to systematize leaving the house intentionally so that they know what the steps are. And then eventually we can just say we're leaving the house and they they can fill the steps in on their own. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and while we're teaching some of that and getting them used to some of that and even afterwards, you know, the more we can back that up visually as well, back that up with systems, with visual clarification and all sorts of things there then it takes away that fleetingness of of speech and expectations and the the person can keep going back to what am i meant to be doing where am i on this routine uh, uh, you know and 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 be able to follow it more accurately until they learn that routine and that system how might we support it visually with schedules timetables uh just writing things down and your example there of the mum or the dad or the parent uh, that is trying to ask a child to do something where they know each step of that might be a battle, then depersonalize some of that a little bit. Uh, it's easier to go and slip a post-it note uh, to that child who is, uh, you know, playing that video game to say, you know, once this, once you lose this life or whatever it is, you know, in the next 10 minutes, even with a timer maybe, or, you know, setting an alert on their phone, but in 10 minutes time, you know, we need to be going and don't say anything at all. That could be your communication. Just having that there in front of the child to be able to look at and process in their own time and give them that warning time that that a change is about to happen. And another thing to do, this is what I do with my kids. 
is ask the kid how much time they need. Like if they're playing a video game, they're watching a YouTube video. If you habitualize how much time do you need to finish that up, then it's less of a conflict because you're respecting their stuff. You're respecting their activity. You're respecting their time. You're showing them that they need to respect your time by asking them about their time. And that circles back to the power dynamics that I was sort of mentioning earlier, right? Because oftentimes parents and bosses at work and stuff as a way to like exercise their power, flaunt their power, demonstrate their power. They just try to end stuff, like just stop doing that thing and come and do this thing, right? But that undermines relationship and actually undermines your power because you're going to get resistance as a result. If you're respectful of the other person's time and efforts and energy, you get more power because you're wielding it less like a cudgel and more like a feather. But paradoxically, you get more influence as a result. Less control, maybe, but you don't need the control because you've got the influence. It's just respect, isn't it? It's respect of other people's priorities. It might be mum's priority to we need to go to grandma's uh, in the next 10 minutes because you don't know that then I've got to be home in time to get tea ready or I've got a shopping delivery coming or all of those sorts of things. But for the child, my priority is here that this is the furthest I've ever been in this computer game and I don't want to end it now because you know, if I lose that life, I'm never going to be at this place again. And and that might not feel like a huge priority to a frazzled mom or a frazzled dad. But for that child, that is that's a huge priority. So, yeah, it's respecting other people's priorities, whether in the home, at school or in the workplace. And as you say, offer choices and say, you know, we come back to that time thing. You know, how much time do you need for this to be in a place where you can finish up? But also giving some context to later as well, because just saying you can pick that up later for some children later means absolutely nothing. And sometimes they can't trust our later because we say later and then we don't mean it or later is actually tomorrow and not in the next half of an hour, which is what the child has has imagined. Or as a parent, we have ADHD. We genuinely mean later and then we forget all about it because 15 minutes has gone by and it didn't stick in our memory. Absolutely. So yeah, you know, if, if we need the child to get off of that video game, then we need to be putting in time where they can, where they can go back to that game. And we might need to describe it. This happens in my house where I'm like, well, I need you to wrap that up right now. But when we get back, you can do it again. And then I think more and I'm like, wait, but we're going to get back at like seven o'clock. So realistically, that's not a plan. We're not going to, you're not going to have time to do that. So Tomorrow morning, you can do it. Well, but tomorrow morning, we have Kempo. So we might not be able to do it. With you can get to this by like at like noon or after lunch tomorrow. Like that's one late. I'll do that with my kids where I kind of literally do that thinking out loud stuff that I just did where I'm like this. And then, nope, that's not why that's not going to happen. It helps them know that I mean it when I say later. It helps reinforce my trustworthiness. I don't do it all the time because I don't always remember to. But it's not uncommon that I do. But on the at the same time, while it does show them that I'm trustworthy and reinforce like that, I mean it, it also sometimes overwhelms them. So you kind of have to know where your kid's at too, because if you're doing all this thinking out loud of like, well, we got this, then we're doing that. And then we're doing this, then we're doing that. And then we're doing this, that can ramp them up too. So you have to be mindful of that component of the conversation as well. Yeah. Uh, I think saying what you mean and meaning what you say would be my number one top tip. <laughs> 
uh, and not making false promises, you know, not saying that something's going to happen if you know, or, or even if you can't know, but if you can't trust that it absolutely can happen. And saying what you mean and meaning what you say brings me to idioms because, oh my God, what do idioms mean? Can you first define idioms for the folks who are not English teachers and then walk us through why those are a minefield? So we use idiom and metaphor all the time in our language without even knowing that that we're doing it. I'll give an example um, of a child just going back to the visiting grandparents thing, because I've been thinking about this. A child that I said uh, to after they'd come in from the weekend and they'd spent some time with their grandparents. And I just flippantly said, oh, do you see much of them? And the child looked at me in abject horror and said, I see all of them. And it took me a while to to understand what they meant by that. But later on in the day, they drew a picture of their grandparents with dismembered limbs. And we had a real laugh and some real humor about it. And actually, they gave it to their grandparents who have it framed on the mantelpiece. But just an example of them having to make sense of what I meant by, do you see all of, of your grandparents? I remember saying to a child once, it's time to get on the minibus for swimming. And this child just saying to me, and we went swimming, you know, talking about routining and structuring things. We went swimming every week, you know, on and off at different times through the year. But this child looked at me and said, isn't all the water going to fall out when we open the doors? And I just thought, wow, yeah, absolutely. You know, this was a child that was doing GCSEs and that was very articulate and I needed to stop and sort of recheck my language there because on another day, I probably have said exactly the same thing and they've understood it because their energy and their stress levels and the context or the cues, the visual cues I'm giving just gave them more support around that language and that communication. But on that occasion, I had to really rethink, no, I mean, we're going to get on the minibus, we're going to drive to the swimming pool we're going to get off the minibus, we're going to go into the pool and we're going to swim there. And that wasn't one that really held us up for long and that the child felt any distress over. Uh, It wasn't a biggie, but it's an example for me of how many times through the day or through just a 15 minutes is that happening where a child is having to take the visual image that they see and reframe it into some sort of context that that I meant, my intention, that makes sense. So we say things like raining cats and dogs or pay attention. You know, I must have said that countless times in school to pay attention at the same time as teaching some of the children and young people in my school that when you go to a supermarket and pay a cashier, you're giving something and then you're waiting for your change and all those social skills that I've talked about what paying means that has no context in terms of paying attention. And then you've got that little A at the beginning of attention, right? So the kid could even think you're saying pay a tension. Yeah. And they're like, well, what's a tension? Like tension on a, like a rope. And if we've talked about tension as in stress, And when a child is unregulated and we talk about them being tense and how to get rid of strategies to get rid of some of that tension that they're feeling, then that's taken their mind to something potentially triggering as well and quite difficult. So, yeah, I've never thought of that 
before. But yeah, you know, it's fraught with difficulties. And another piece to this idiom component is it's really easy to lose the thread of the conversation because you're trying to figure out what that means. This happened to me during a podcast interview. And it was very early on. It was it's like within the first 10. I interviewed my friend Stephanie Letourneau, who's a, a fourth grade teacher. And she was talking about how her grandmother taught her that a stitch in time saves nine, which is totally an idiom. That means if you stitch your pants in time, like at the right moment when the rip first shows up, if you put one stitch in, you won't have to put nine stitches in later. Like that's what that means. And she said this, and I hadn't heard that since I was a kid. And that idiom always confused me as a kid. I never understood what it meant. Like, what did nine do to get in so much trouble that they need to be saved? Like, that was what I thought. And probably it's because there was a picture in my kindergarten class trying to make a stitch in time saves nine look cool, where I I can almost remember it. I'm imagining like a needle with a cape on and like a nine tied to railroad tracks or something. And the stitch is going to save nine. Right. Yeah. Which because that's always how I've thought of that idiom. And I never understood what it meant. And so in this interview, she's talking about it. And I'm like, I lost the thread of the interview for a minute. Luckily, she kept talking and I figured it out like at 42 years old or whatever. I was like, oh, that's what that means. And I think that's really crucial. It's not that neurodivergent people can't learn these things. It's the time, the effort, the exhaustion it takes to translate. It is a translation sometimes of we know neurodivergent people are more likely to think in pictures and to see those visualizations. And that doesn't mean that they can't work out what we actually mean by it, but it all takes time and effort. Um, some idioms we've got in the book, one of the worst, you know, Sam is on fire today. <laughs> when someone's doing something well, <laughs> oh, you're on fire today. Picking up the wrong end of the stick, twisting your arm to do something. One I remember saying to a child who was working on office skills in terms of work experience was that they were a born laminator. You know, they were doing such a good job and you're a born laminator. And they looked at me and I'm clearly not a laminator, am I? I'm clearly not. Um, (laughs) But yeah, we need to just be checking, checking those things because you're right about the pace. It's, it's, It's losing your thread and then keeping up with the conversation. That's where it becomes tricky. Or sometimes it can even feel threatening, right? Like if you're going to help a kid out and you say to them, look, I know this is going to be pulling teeth, but we got to write that essay. And the kid's like, are you going to pull teeth out of my head if I don't do a good job writing this essay? That could happen too. And you don't mean it, but they can get more anxious about something they're already anxious about because of the phrase that you use. Yeah. I always think of the child in the classroom who is having to do this translation all the time and and processing and taking from the filing cabinet in in their mind uh okay you've just you've just said something about the wrong end of the stick so i'm going to my filing cabinet on sticks and <laughs> this isn't making sense in the context that you're talking about and by the time they've worked it out and they might have something really phenomenal <laughs> to contribute but the conversation's moved on so by the time they put their hand up in the classroom or they blurt out something really, really integral to to what was being talked about. 
they risk the other children laughing or the teacher saying, oh, we're not talking about that anymore. And so, you know, back to your wall of awful, all of that stacks up then, doesn't it? To, do you know what? I'm not going to contribute <laughs> because when I do, I get it wrong. I, 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 I get something wrong. Yeah. And this circles back to that idea that this stuff isn't easy. We use idioms without even meaning to. We use figurative language without even meaning to, without even realizing it. A good example of this is the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. In that movie, Drax the Destroyer is supposed to be really literal. One of the best jokes in the movie is when he says, nothing ever goes over my head because I'm too fast and I would catch it. But also in that movie, there's all kinds of idioms and stuff where Drax could not be understanding things that they don't do anything with because it's normal in our everyday conversation to use a lot of figurative language for emphasis, to make a point. So I don't want parents to be sitting back and going, I have to get rid of all of my idioms because no, you don't. But you do have to be a little more aware of when you're using them and whether or not your kid is understanding that idiom or or what's being said. And honestly, does your kid even know what an idiom is? It might be helpful to teach them what idioms are so that when they hit something that they don't understand, they can go, oh, that was probably an idiom. And that's why I don't get it. So the meaning is different because in being literal, a lot of kids with ADHD are wicked smart and they can take that concept and apply it to other spots when it doesn't make sense. They can go, that's probably an idiom. That's probably why I don't get it. I'll ask later. I kind of get from context what this means, even though it didn't make sense. They can do that if we've taught them what idioms and, and metaphors and similes and stuff are, some of which has happened in school. But just because they learn something in school doesn't mean that they transfer that knowledge to home. So you might want to visit it while you're at home, too. And unfortunately, we have reached the point where I have to say, just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? What you've just said there about recognizing, recognizing when somebody might be confused by the language that you use, owning it, owning your mistake, teaching it if it is an idiom or a pun or a metaphor or just something that was that was figurative or unclear owning it saying you know what that's on me <laughs> and then yeah just you know the book is full of practical strategies around lots of different areas really just making sure that we're trying to validate the person the child or the adult or you know validate their means of communication how they communicate and again, meeting them on that bridge and taking some more responsibility, not expecting, this is going to be a, a figurative sentence there, but not expecting people to meet our expectations, being open to learning new ways of communicating and new ways of just being with people. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.